Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is an incredible guest uh, who really does some amazing work. So his name is Steven Sisler. You may have heard of him before. He's written a number of books, uh, but he is one of today's master level behavioral profilers and lead behavioral analyst at the Behavioral Resource Group. His behavioral consultation involves personality difference, career strategy, leadership strategy, cultural differences, spiritual growth, relationship management, uh, and temperament strategy. So working with clients in more than 18 nations, he gathers behavioral, emotional, and attitudinal information on individuals with corporate and personal settings and develops strategies for effective leadership, teamwork, and entrepreneurial success. Uh, he's done some pretty amazing things. His clients have come to know him as their go-to source for behavioral and attitudinal issues with the framework of business, family, career, uh, and career intentions. So his work is fairly unconventional. Uh, His approach is practical and his outcomes are often unbelievable while he remains somewhat uh, fashionable in his uh, his approach. And he has shared the the platform and the stage with top speakers like Guy Kawasaki, uh, Kimball Musk, who is Elon Musk's uh, sibling, I believe, uh, Steve Sims, Dan Martell, Ben Greenfield, Dave Asprey, uh, and he's been featured on you know podcasts like The Art of Charm, Ben Greenfield's podcast, uh, and, and a few others, just to name a few. But today on the show, we dive into a few different pieces. So we talk about the angry brain. Uh, we talk about uh, why Stephen got into this work in the first place. It has to do largely with bullying. Uh, so he shares his personal story. But then we talk about the angry brain and the Aristos uh, psychology model. And these are all models of behavioral types. And it's really quite fascinating. And so Stephen shares uh, a few pieces of how anger fits into the creation of our behavioral uh, characteristics of our identity and how it plays into our work environments and our home environment. So he shares uh, how we can face and deal with and manage and work with people who are high angry anger types. Uh, he also shares how anger coincides with a few other key and instrumental uh, behavioral characteristics that can lead us towards success. And we, we talk about the impact of anger within relationships And uh, he shares a little bit about our ability to predict certain outcomes within our career, within our work environment, within our intimate relationships based on our relationship or based on the other person's relationship to anger. So this is a big podcast uh, with a lot of information, some really great analogies, some some really incredible storytelling. And I'm going to bring Stephen in here soon. Uh, But just a quick reminder for all the guys that are out there, we have uh, two men's weekends coming up. One is in August on the West Coast of Canada, and the other one is on the East Coast in upstate New York. And there are a few spots left in each of them. They're close to being sold out. Uh, So if you haven't applied yet, I would encourage you to do so. Um, There are some amazing, amazing men coming from around the world to be a part of these workshops. And ladies, don't worry, we have something coming up for you soon. Uh, Don't think that I've forgotten about you. I've had a lot of women reach out recently and ask if there is going to be something for them or for partners. So we have something brewing for you as well. So without any further delay, I'm going to bring Stephen on. Please share this episode if you know that someone is wanting to learn more about their anger and how it affects or can impact and shape their leadership or their relationship. Uh, So this might be a good podcast to listen to with your partner or to send off to them uh, so they can dig into it as well. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Stephen Sisler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is an honor to have you on here. I've I've actually consumed quite a bit of your content after uh, seeing that I was going to have you on the show just to get a, a bit of a, a sense of who you are and the work that you do and and your model and I mean, just really fascinating stuff. So I'm excited to dig into 
into the brain and into the, the angry brain, especially. But before we get into some of these pieces, uh, I have to ask you the question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Okay. Well, I think I had more a series of defining moments. So when I was young in school, so we're talking, I'd say it began in seventh grade and it went, uh, well, it actually began in kindergarten. So it went about nine years of my life where just constantly bullied simply because of where we lived. So we were in Massachusetts. We were out just outside of Boston. And so as new housing developments were built, all the people from the inner city started coming out and, and moving into the country. And so really our school was a bunch of inner city kids that were basically raised by wolves. So, you know, uh, I'd be stripped down to my underwear and locked in lockers and beat up to the point of unconsciousness. Teachers would have to drive me home from school because I couldn't ride the bus. Uh, you know, once you're targeted, that's pretty much it. Um, in seventh grade, uh, they had me in a class with children with Down syndrome because they thought I was mentally retarded at that point. So it was a, I was on Ritalin. I had uh, attention deficit disorder, hyperactive, which they called hyperkinetic in the 70s. Um, they didn't know what they know now. So I struggled through socially. And rather than coming out an axe murderer, <laughs> I came out very empathetic. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like the, uh, the, the evil genius of, of the mind, if, if that were true. <laughs> so I've really devoted a lot of my adult life to working with people and helping people in any way I can. And over the past 15 years, I started the behavioral resource group focusing on brain differences, you know, uh, how to be the best version of yourself possible, and then take that to work with you and then knock it out of the park. So interesting. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it always blows me away and kind of fascinates me how intricately our pasts are connected with our path and mm -hmm. and, and how the things that have happened to us in our environments growing up are, are often the things that when we start to heal them and we start to move through them, they become the sort of foundation and framework for our purpose in life. And, you know, you've done some incredible work on and you sort of accoladed as one of one of the sort of master level uh, behavioral profilers and i'm curious if you can give us just a little bit of context not only into what led you to wanting to be one of those behavioral profilers which i think you've kind of out outlined a little bit uh and then and then some context of what that actually means and and what's what goes into it okay so at a young age i'd say around 12 i was able to read people extremely well by the time I was in my 30s, people thought I was a prophet. <laughs> they would call me that. Uh, in my business now, I have people, comp companies call wanting me to be their business psychic. So that's kind of the reputation I've had. All right. Now, what's interesting is my mother was like that. The phone would ring and she would tell my father who it was before he answered it. I saw crazy things like that growing up. My grandfather uh, told a man he stole a woman's purse. And the guy said, what are you, crazy? And he said, let's go take a look. Opened up the trunk of his car and there's a woman's pocketbook there. Guy breaks down crying and apologizes. Hmm. Now, I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, it's in me. <laughs> so um, I took that and combined it with behavioral science, which I learned under Grant Masmanian, in 2005, he took me under his wing. He's in Media, Pennsylvania. He's a behavioral analyst. And he basically taught me how to, quote, you know, read the numbers or read the tarot cards. And what that means is people take tests that we create and it produces numbers. And we look at the numbers. And then once we see what those numbers are, because they represent the levels of consistency of your primary emotions, then I can tell you how you're going to do something. So I've combined a lot of incredibly intuitive insights with the science of axiology, behavioral analysis, and motivational orientations. And I combine all three of those or all four of those into one piece. And I end up knowing more about the individual than their parents. Mm. And I created a business out of it. Very cool. Very, very cool. Okay. So maybe, maybe just before, you know, we get into things like the, the, the angry brain and some of these other pieces, can you give some context 
as to what goes into some of your research. And it sounds like the uh, a, a lot of these tests are sort of predicated on the emotional body, and that gives you a lot of data as to a, a person's behavior and their character. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah, that's true. So we use what's known as a DISC model. So the DISC model, a lot of companies or uh, assessment companies will use that model, although they may not call it the DISC model. So the DISC model was formulated and created by Dr. John G. Geyer, who's, you can't really find anything about him online. I've got a signed book by him that somebody found in that was a client and mailed mm-hmm. it to me. But uh, his he did all the research. Dr. Fromm, Edward Fromm, you may have heard that name. Um, Gordon Alport. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people, Dr. Robert S. Hartman, these are people that are the giants when it comes to human behavior, workplace and human motivation, and the science of values. So all of those tests, those assessments, the the algorithms are pretty much public domain. The intellectual property piece is being able to know what the numbers mean when Mm -hmm. they come in based upon the questions or the arrangement of words that are put into these profiles. So the DISC profile, classic DISC, you've probably heard of it, but it's really never been updated in about 43 years. So we updated it and we call it our TARP instrument or our IBO instrument. And it's really largely based on the work of uh, John G. Geyer and all his research. And now we have, you know, thousands and th- tens of thousands of, of, of assessment data from individuals across the country and the world that we can look at and create statistical norms and things like this out of those. So I was at an event with a company yesterday and there was an individual in there and I knew right away he's less than 4% of the country. And so um, most of the people in the room are about 47% of the country, which made sense. He's There's one of him and seven other people were mm-hmm. the, the other way. And you see this a lot. And so anyway, that's kind of how that the data works and how the research uh, works. And some of these people like Dr. Robert S. Hartman, and we're talking over 40 years of research, and then Dr. Wayne Carpenter, another 40 years of research, uh, and then creating instruments that gather the information through a algorithm based upon the logical sequence of answers and so forth that just creates a mathematical equation that's highly relatable and dependable. And when you said, you know, that this gentleman at the conference was 4% of the population, uh, what, what did you mean by that? So uh, you put 100 random people in a room, about four of them or less will be like this person, hmm. you see, uh, because it's just like if I drive to, the, to downtown Dallas, what vehicle am I going to see the most of while I'm driving? It'll be a four-door Ford pickup. Like I'll see 60 of them. How many Maseratis do I see? I might not see any, but are they out there? Well, sure they are, but there's a lower percentage of them. So it doesn't have anything to do with how much better the vehicle is in comparison to the truck. It just is how many are there. So when I see one, I gawk at it. So we had a company, had an individual in there, very rare. We're talking 14 people out of 1,500. And so he was quirky. And he always feels like nobody gets me. What's interesting is I just looked at him because I was looking at his numbers in the organization. I said, let me ask you a question. He said, what's that? I said, do you play the banjo? He said, oh, my God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't even know how I did that one. But I knew he likely played an instrument because the odds were about 84%. And I knew it would be an out there instrument, you know, an oboe, you know, or something that you don't see a lot of people playing, but, you know, some people play them. And I just guessed at the banjo and I was right. And so they were shocked. And so this type of thing happens a lot with me. But anyway, that being said, he's unconventional. Right. So his the way he approaches things, the way he sees things, the way he thinks he's a unicorn among horses. If you don't understand what's going on, you don't appreciate it. People are by nature against what they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so having people see him for who he is and embrace him for that was a really great moment. 
because he's an asset to the to the organization. From your perspective and from the work and the research that you've done, why is it that people largely want to avoid the things that they don't understand? Why is it that when they see someone like that who is clearly distinct and unique, that they tend to want to avoid it? Well, uh, you know, we like sameness as humans. You know, every animal will just call cows and dogs and deer, the lower animals, and our cells will just call us higher animals because we have a neocortex. Um, but the lower animals, they have a, a limbic system, as do we, and we call that our lizard brain or the, the old brain. And that's the part of our brain that looks at any given situation and sends two signals, approach or avoid. If we don't know what we're looking at, we get an avoidance signal. If we know what we're looking at, we can perceive, we believe we can perceive what we're looking at, we get an approach signal. And so the moment you walk up to somebody and shake their hand or you're introduced to a partner at work or whatever, that signal goes off unconsciously in your mind and you will act accordingly. So when people meet people that they don't understand or we can't read their face, then we are by nature apprehensive. Why? Because people are more dangerous than grizzly bears. Because you don't, you'll never encounter a grizzly bear this year, in the next five years, probably in the next 50 years, unless you go to a zoo, a circus, or you're wandering around in the woods where you shouldn't be without a weapon. Other than that, we're not worried about grizzlies. But you could encounter a sociopath today who will kidnap you and cut your head off. We all know that's possible. Our greatest enemy is another person. And so, because we're all at the top of the food chain. When you look at another person, you look for signals and signs that they're safe. When people wave, they show their palms. The evolution of palm showing goes all the way back to the ancient Romans and Greeks when they used to shake, not hands, but shake forearms. They were feeling for daggers. They wanted to see if you were safe because that's where people held the dagger was up on the wrist. And that's really what they were feeling for. Today, when people wave, they're basically saying, hi, I have no weapons. And so we feel safe. This is why priests show their palms. This is why... Bill Jefferson Clinton spoke. Whenever he spoke, he showed his palms. It's why people that point or hide the palm, like the Nazi Hal Hitler sign, palm down, makes us feel uncomfortable. There's these signals that are going on. And we are always looking for danger so that we can avoid it as human beings. So when I meet somebody different, it's not something I've seen before. It's like a deer who has an unfamiliar smell and it pops its head up real quick and looks around. What does this mean? And this is what we do as people. Hmm. So what, what are some of the traits or characteristics? And, and then maybe we can go into the, you know, the, the, the Aristotle uh, psychology model. But what are some of the characteristics and traits that our brain naturally looks for in others to understand that there's sameness? Well, you know, when we look at people, we're looking for an, an, a signals that would allow us to approach. Okay, so what today creates that? Smiles, not just smiling with our mouths, but smiling with our eyes, showing our palms, people that are more interested in us than themselves. These give us feelings of, of safe. People that don't get in your space, they stay at least three feet away. Um, that's why certain people types, if you get th closer than three feet, they get extremely uncomfortable and start touching themselves above the shoulder line. It, 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 it's just safety comes from familiarity. And so the, the sooner I feel familiar, the better I'm going to feel. This is why when a salesperson will call you, call you, they'll say, Hey, Connor, how are you doing today? And you're like, Oh, you're asking about me. You're wondering how I'm doing. And then I go, I'm doing great. As soon as you say I'm doing great, they've got you. That's known as the consistency rule. Because now you're going to have to speak consistent with what you confessed. So if I'm doing great, then I've got some money I can share with you. Very interesting. This is why they're trained to do it this way. If they just called and said, 
I'm selling something. I want to know if you want to pay. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get in. But when they say, how are you doing? You're interested in me. Immediately, they're trying to produce approach signals. But it's a ploy. Hmm. They really don't care how I'm doing today. The, I'm a number. They've got a quota. And they can't wait to hang up and get the one that they're going to catch. But if you understand this, then it changes your world. If you don't, you know, uh, you'll be like the woman I know that I walked up to her home and she was struggling with a gentleman who was standing on her front porch trying to sell her magazines she'll never read for $300. And she's pulling out her checkbook and I stopped her and I said, hold on a minute, let me look at what you're selling. He showed it to me. I said, that's not even worth $10. He, he started laughing. I said, listen, I think you're done here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, he says, and then saunters off. And she looked at me almost with tears in her eyes. Thank you for rescuing me. Mm. She couldn't say no because she's extremely low anger, high patience, high influence, high compliance. Mm. It's called the true believer. And she's empathy driven. He's young, he's trying to make a living, blah, blah, blah. All these things played to the psychology of the moment, and she was about to sign away 300 bucks. Basically, you might as well take that money and throw it in a fire. But she's going to walk away feeling good that she helped, but tomorrow, buyer's remorse, and there's nothing she can do. So your model, in many ways, allows you and allows your organization and, and other organizations to have a comprehensive understanding of the different archetypes of how people behave or like maybe just give us a bit of a, of a, imagine that I'm a layman, which I actually am. Uh, and, and you're explaining the, uh, Aristo psych, psych, uh, psychology model to me. How would you describe what it is and what it does? Okay. Well, the Aristo psychology model, the, the Aristos is a Greek word. It's roughly translated as towards the best. Okay, that, that's really what that word means. Toward implies a continual movement. So moving towards. So really the Aristos model is all about gaining enough self-understanding so that you can move towards your best self, your best self. And that's, that's what that's all about. Um, so what we do is we work with people in organizations or people in general, and that might even be a couple or anyone in a relationship, or just an individual, and help them understand themselves, how they think, how they view the world, what motivates them, or what creates brain tension. So motivation is really our brain's job to lessen tensions in the brain, which turns into motivation. So if, I'm, if I feel brain tension, if I'm not in control of my space, then I have to be in control of my space because I don't want the brain tension. So I try to get more control in an effort, reduce that tension. So you might call that person, hey, oh, they're a control freak, right? Or whatever. What we're really happening is their brain's about trying to lessen the tension that builds by not being in control enough. And that can come from a variety of reasons. But that's what it is. So once people understand the way they are, they can embrace themselves for who they are rather than comparing themselves with somebody else and trying to be different. Your best version of yourself will bring you the most money. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. 100%. So where does that take place? Well, you've got tomatoes and toolboxes and hammers and salads. And they're wondering why it's not working. So I help describe them to them, say, listen, you're a tomato and your environment, that's not a salad. That's why you're struggling. That's why you don't look forward to going to work. You need an environment that consists of these qualities. And when you have an environment like that, you will shine, you'll feel good, and you won't be able to wait to get to work. 84% mm. of the population right now in America is waiting on their dream job. They're only in the job they're in because it pays the bills, and they're okay at doing it. But you ask 100 people, random, that are working, 84% of them aren't doing what they really want to do. And most of those people don't know what they really want to do. They don't even know what it is. They just know it's not this. So what we do is help define it for them. Okay. I mean, there's so many things that stood out in there. I think one of the, uh, one of the ones that I would love for you to maybe expand on a little bit is uh, around brain tension and then, and then maybe just unpack why 
so many people are not pursuing what they want? Well, uh, number one, your brain isn't fully developed until age 26. So the way I look at things, you shouldn't, even know, you shouldn't go to college until after 26. You shouldn't get married till after 26. Now, some people do, and it works out, and that's fine. But most of them don't work out, and that's why. Because your brain changes. And so people don't know what they want to do. Usually early on, they figure out what they want to do later on. And the reason being is because they're still in development. They're still trying to figure things out. Only one in four people use their degree. Three quarters of them are doing something they didn't go to school for, and they have $100,000 in school loans. What happened? Right? And so this is what's happening. Granted, the world's changing. But to, to, to answer your question about brain tension, based upon Edwin Spranger and Gordon Alport and some others, we define seven value elements or motivational elements. Um, there's a creative element. There's an efficiency element. There's an individualistic element. There's a curiosity element. There's a power element. There's a regulating element. There's these different elements. If you're regulated in your brain, then you believe there's only one way to skin a cat the right way. If you're not regulated in your brain, you don't have high consistency in the regulations piece of the motivational framework, then you believe there's more than one way to skin a cat. So that's the difference between the leader that says, here's how you need to do it. And if you don't do it that way, you can't work here versus the other leader who says, uh, I don't care how you do it. Just don't get just don't make a mess. And so that's that's how those things work. If you've got somebody who's highly individualistic in their thinking, then they're looking for freedom and autonomy in the world. They want to be free to do what they want, when they want, however they want, wearing whatever they want. They don't want anyone to stop them. So if you come and work for me and I say, here's what you need to do and you can't do anything else, it's like putting me in a straitjacket. And so that starts to build brain tension. I'm not feeling satisfied. I'm not feeling good about what I'm doing. Maybe I'm not sure why. Maybe I am. But eventually, maybe I'll leave. If you have a high power element, you need to be in control of your own space and destiny. If you have a low power element, you'll yield your position to avoid a controversy. So if you are super dominant, then in your high power, then it's get in, get out, or get run over. If you're low dominant and high power, I want to be in charge, but I can't take charge. So there's all these integrated patterns when we look at all of these numbers that tell us exactly how you are going to do things, how it's going to play in the world, play out in the world, and how you're going to feel and why you're going to quit. And I've been able over the years, I've told people this person's going to quit in four months almost to the day, just based upon the way their brain is, what they're dealing with, and what's going on. And it creates a problem. Or it creates harmony. Or, you know, it either works out or it doesn't work out. And uh, it's just based upon who they are, what they do, who they're doing it with, who they're doing it for, and how those people are wired. And that creates a dynamic. And once you understand what that dynamic is, you know exactly how it's going to go. So I've looked at couples before many, many times. They want to get married. They go through the analysis. I'm like, yeah, this ain't going to last. What are you talking about? And I start bringing things up. Have you noticed this? Yes. Have you noticed this? Yes. Have you noticed this? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, that's not going <laughs> to change. And they're like, oh, I've had people put their wedding on hold. I've had people cancel. Um, once they, but they, they had an idea, they weren't sure, but what do we do? We think we can change people. You can only change your own mind. So what we're doing is you have one brain hooking up with another brain that's completely different. So if you're different in your behaviors, which is normal, then it creates intrigue and attraction. But if you're different in values, it sets it up for a failure. Consistency in values creates longevity. It creates um, sustainability. Inconsistency in values will someday show up and become a problem. If you know what it is and what it isn't, you can better define if that's the car you want to buy. How many have bought a car and then later realized it didn't do this or didn't do that and they thought it did because they weren't paying attention and they want to trade it mm -hmm. in? This is what we do with people. We trade them in for a better model. 
And when people come to me about marriage, now I'm like, first thing on my list for you to do is a two-year lease with an option to renew. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We take better care of our rent of our lease cars than we do the purchased ones. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. And we do the same thing with people. It's called being taken for granted. So, uh, you know, a lot of the work that you have done, you know, you wrote this great book called The Angry Brain. And I'm curious, maybe just to give some foundation of how does anger impact everything that we've been talking about? Well, so we all have the anger emotion. It's just not as consistent in some people as it is in others. People that have an extremely consistent anger emotion, and the book is really about those that are more angry than others. So we're talking about on a scale of zero to 100, a consistency, let's say, in the 80s or the 90s, or a 98, like our current president. <laughs> um, so these are authoritarian models of people. Uh, Madonna, Cher, Martha Stewart, Donald Trump, um, Mark Cuban, Michael Jordan. Okay, those are high dominant individuals. Those type of people think in one, they think one way, results. That's it. That, that, that's all they do. They just think in terms of results. They see things in people as tools because they believe if I want something of value, it lies outside of myself. And the only way to get it is to take it by force. So I imagine Madonna having conversations with those who are her agents who saying, I think I've decided to go out on stage in my underwear and then seeing how that conversation played out. <laughs> and I know how it ended. Oh, yeah. Watch me. Right. Pure dominance. Um, and so she got the results she wanted. She changed the music industry single handed for females of all time. Right. So Madonna is not a singer. She's a ruthless businesswoman who can sing. So that's part of that dominant personality type. Is it good or bad? It has nothing to do with virtue or value. It's just how they do things. They're logical. They're straightforward, extremely direct. They don't have time for stupid. They're impatient. And they will kill you if they think you're going to kill them. And they'll do it. They'll pull the gun first. They're only thinking about what is next and what's in my way. This is why Donald Trump walks ahead of the queen. There's a door. It needs to be opened. That's my job. Let's get it done. Well, what about all the peripheral? Doesn't see any of it. Hmm. In my lifetime, we've never had a core dominant president. That's why nobody knows what to make of it. It's less than 4% of the country. So what do we do? It's bad. Why? Because I don't get it. So what do I do? I assign my bias to it. Do you think for one minute when uh, the, the Washington press corps is seated there and the press secretary makes a statement about the administration, regardless of whatever administration it is, and this is what we're doing, and then they question it, they go, oh my God, I'm so sorry, I misinterpreted you guys. Let me change that. They never do that. Nobody does that. And the reason being is your brain will never Never verify if what it thinks is true. It will only justify what it already believes. This is why there will never be non-polarization in, in, in a nation. And so people that are very dominant, now we're not only entering brain bias situations, but now it's might makes right, right? That's, that's how the animal kingdom is run. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's why it's called the lion's share. So dominant people get the lion's share of women, money, everything. So I write about how all that's playing out, why it's playing out, what it looks like, charts and graphs. So people can understand, oh, I thought they didn't like me. No, it, it, they're not even probably thinking about you. And they might like you a lot, but they just don't say that types of thing. You know, getting intimate and touchy-feely for a dominant is like washing your feet with your socks on. It doesn't make any sense. And the, to the degree that this is consistent, you start entering into adult attachment disorders. You start entering into, you know, spheres of uh, types of people like what Geyer called the jungle fighter, 
So you look at the world and you look at people, all you see is winners and losers. That's all you see. If you don't meet my preconceived concept, you are a loser. And I don't work with losers. That's how they think. That's why Trump had the show The Apprentice. He got to pick the winner and all the losers because that's what he does best. And it's not based on truth. It's based on who he thinks is a winner and who he thinks is a loser. Because somebody else might look at that person, pick them up and bring them to their company. He fired them and they end up taking the company to a whole nother level somewhere else. Hmm. So this is someone's personal definition based upon their own biases. It's not a cultural fixed standard that everybody must live up to. It's our own personal ideas and concepts. Is that concept fulfilled or is it unfulfilled? And what people do is, my idea of this concept looks like this. If you don't fulfill it, get out. You see, and, that, and that's how they think. Some of them are very successful. Some of them are not so successful. Some of them are bullies. Some are just firm. Some come off as narcissistic and egotistical. Sometimes that's a misinterpretation because most of the people in the country are passive. And so when they see that, they just think it's really bad because we don't see people as they are. We see them as we are. And if we were acting like that, it would be for bad reasons. So we just assign that to them like a name tag. And just we, every time we look at them, it says bad person on their T-shirt. And so once you understand the dynamics, you can look at a situation, watch it play out and go, oh, they're just an objective thinker. That makes sense. And now you're not getting your feelings hurt. You realize if I'm going to answer that email and be, and be uh, uh, advantageous to this person, I better fit all this into one sentence or don't even send one. So if a very high dominant person asks you, you're going to be in the meeting today, you just send one, one word back, no, period, done. That's their favorite email of the day. So when you meet up with people like that, it's basically be good, be bright, be gone. Do you feel like there is, I mean, I have many questions around, <laughs> there's, there's obviously many questions I'm sure that the, that the listeners are thinking about, you know, the example that you're giving with Trump and that, that sort of uh, anger and, and dominance. And, um, you know, I think that there's many examples of those in the workplace as well. So how, how does one sort of go about negotiating or managing in those situations with, with people that are of that top percentile that experience mm -hmm. and, and have a lot of anger. And then, and then secondly, do you see that as a, as a functional role within the work environment, within the corporate structure? Okay. Good. Great questions. Really good questions. So uh, to answer the first one, um, how can I best function if I'm working with that kind of a person? Well, if, if I'm subordinate to that person, there's only one way to do it. Figure out what they want and deliver it fast. Mm. If you can't do that, get out of the way. Okay, because those types, people are in their way, not along their way. You're either in their way or you're not. It's either or. Okay, now that we're talking core dominant types. There are many different kinds of dominant types and some aren't as difficult as others but the most difficult ones just deliver or get out and don't complain or they'll think you're a baby it's just the way it is so if you're going to go play in the, it's sort of like if you're going to sign up to get on television and join hell's kitchen with gordon ramsay who's a core dominant um and you screw up he might look at you and call you an effing cow i saw him do that <laughs> and I left the woman in tears yeah well I'm thinking, did she never see one of these shows before she signed up to get on it? What was she thinking? Well, she was seeing him as she is, not as he is. Mm. That's what we all do. And boy, was that an awakening, right? But that's the way he is. So for him, it worked. For many that are with him, it doesn't. So in the workplace, dominant people tend to use fear as a motivator. Is that good? No, it's not good. It's not good at all. Could they be better and get better results? Yes, they could. 
Will they? Most won't. Some will. Who will? The ones who care more about others than they do themselves. So now we're talking about empathy. What is empathy? It's twofold. It's my clarity level. How clearly can I see that how what my choice and decisions are are affecting you? How clearly can I see that? You ever heard, you ever seen that person who does something really dumb and mean? Everybody gets upset and they look around going, I don't know what everybody's upset about. Mm -hmm. They could not clearly see how their choices and decisions affected the people around them. Okay, that's one piece, the clarity piece. Then there's the attention or the bias piece. Once you see or don't see how your choices and decisions affect the people around you, do you care? You see? Some people don't care how their choices affect people around them. Some people do. So if you can clearly see how your choices and decisions affect the people around you and your attention level and your bias is 100% positive, then you're signing up to be taken advantage of because you see people as better than they actually are. Women who do this that are passive marry sociopaths. They beat them every Friday night when they get drunk and they stay in the marriage. They don't leave. Mm. They say, it's my fault. What did I do wrong? Why? Because they're better than I am, so it has to be my fault. This is how their brain works. And people that are very patient need consistency and predictability. Well, where am I going to live with two small kids? Well, if I live here, I know where to come home every day, so I'll just stay here. They're also protectors, and I get to protect my kids from the beast. So now I'm emotionally employed. <laughs> on and on it goes. And then you look at it from the outside, and it's all bad. But yet, they, they wouldn't have it any other way. They don't want it, but they need it because of the way they're wired. And these are the things people don't understand. Why does she stay with that guy? Well, you got an hour? I'll tell you why. Right? And now you're feeling, oh, my God, I had no idea. Yeah. It's not that they're just stupid. Some of these women are brilliant. They have high-paying jobs, right? But what's going on? Those are the dynamics. So I think I got off track there because I get to talk and you don't say anything. I get to keep going. <laughs> no, no. No, I, I, was, I was listening very, very intently because I, I, I have known women in that exact situation and, you know, I think from the outside, you can often and men in that situation, but you can often see the, yeah. the sort of functionality of the dysfunction. You know, you can kind of see what people are getting out of that dysfunctional dynamic where you're like, like, I would never put myself in that situation. But let me just try and understand why that person has allowed this to happen and mm -hmm. what purpose or function they think that they're getting mm -hmm. out of being in this type of dysfunctional relationship. I think to just pull this back to, you know, I think what you just said was brilliant, but to just to pull this back to, to how you know, anger can impact the average person, because we were talking about, you know, the, the, the sort of high percentile, right? The, the top four percentile uh, of people that sort of have anger being deployed mm -hmm. consistently and constantly, people like Trump and Gordon Ramsay. What about for the, the quote-unquote um, average person? How does anger show up for them? How does it show up within, within their relationship and within their work environment? Okay. And why is it an important tool? Okay, great, great, great question again. So uh, let's look at the, 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 the average angry brain that isn't creating total chaos and mayhem. So there's different types. Um, there's visionary types. So they have anger coupled with optimism. Okay, in the disc, that's D and I, dominance and influence. Okay, there's a lot of those in the entrepreneurial space. Um, and a lot of them are my, are my clients. And those types thrive in chaos. In other words, about 30 to 40% of them are unconventional, which is only 16% of the population as a whole, which means they're looking through a prism while everybody else is looking through glass. So they see the rainbow. They can't describe it. You don't know what they're talking about, and they get frustrated, so they do it themselves. So those types, they don't do things in spite of people. They do things through people. 
So core dominant people do things in spite of people. You with me or not, right? So people that do things through people like, hey, this is going to be great. You know what, guys? We can do this. You guys are smart. It's going to be great. We can do this. So what happens? There's a part of their brain that has three fears. Number one, they have a fear of not being liked. Number two, they have a fear of failure. And number three, they have a fear of being mischaracterized. And at the same time, they're seeing people and things as a means to an end, but not at the expense of people through people. So those are the Han Solo types. Okay. You kind of love to hate him. <laughs> he, you're, you're pissed off because he's late to the meeting, but when he gets there, you don't know why you're hugging him. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, I do. There are I think people that are very easy to forgive, so they never ask for permission. They do whatever they want, and they know you are going to forgive them, and so do you. And you can't wait to do it. Why? <laughs> because they still bring value to your life because they make you feel like a million bucks when you're with them. But the reason why they're doing that is so that you will like them, you won't see them as a failure, and you know where they're coming from. That's the only reason why they're doing it. Mm. It's not necessarily because they love you so much. It's because you're their golden ticket. And they basically praise you into a position of wanting to honor and serve them. Mm. That's Tony Robbins. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, and people think he's Jesus. But try working for him. Yeah. I know people that have. And it's brutal. But why do they stay? They love to tell their friends, I work for Tony Robbins. So they tolerate the chaos in an effort to embrace by personification his deityist type uh, aura. And by association, they're with one of the most well-known people in the world, and that's who they work for. So now they have value as a human being because in their own mind, they don't have personal value. Their value is based upon who they attach themselves to, and it's based on that person's value, not their own. And these are the people that will work in circumstances that are just not really in your best interest, but what they're getting out of it is a sense of value at their expense. But it's worth it. It's a trade. Because having a personal sense of value is more important than how much money you make. We all want to be important. We all want to be loved. And we all want to be on the winning team. That's why you have so many different religions. So that almost sounds like that's the, the next sort of slew of, of people or like the next gradient, I guess you could say. Uh, within people who are using and deploying anger on, on a regular basis. What about the anger avoidance? The anger avoidance? Yeah, like the people that don't necessarily want to uh, use anger or feel anger as much. Okay, so, uh, so here's the deal. Anger, optimism, patience, and fear are your primary emotions. And if you're more consistent in patience and less consistent in anger, you're not thinking about not wanting to be angry. You're just not. So those people don't get angry. They get hurt, but it will look the same. Matter of fact, there's more power in being hurt than there is in being mad. Okay. A good example of that is a bear and her cubs. A mother bear is not angry. It's a protector. It's protection. So it's patience. Okay. So have you ever seen or heard of the story of the mild mannered man who's at court because a person's on trial for raping and killing his daughter? He works at a telephone company. He's been there 26 years. He's got high water pants. He's the nicest guy on the block. And then as soon as the guy gets out in the foyer at the courthouse, he shoots him. Then he gets down on his knees and puts his wrists forward and says, cuff me. My job's done here. Those are the people you need to worry about. Here's a famous one, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy had everybody who personally knew him coming to his defense for the first year that he was being captured. Why? He's the nicest guy I know. 
Was he angry? No. He was passive. What he had was a very high crystal clear level of clarity, which means when it came to empathetic responses, so he could go to the beach, stand there for five minutes, and out of 100 women, spot the three most vulnerable. That's step number one. Number two, he knows they can't say no. So he walks up to them and asks them while wearing a cast because patient, amiable people are empathetic as a rule. He's wearing a fake cast. and He says, could you help me get my sailboat on top of my Volkswagen? Oh, sure. Let me put this away first. And they're never seen again. Don't be afraid of the angry people. This is what's known as, quote, going postal. Nobody knew that was going to happen. Nobody knew that guy was going to circle back in 20 minutes and come back to the workplace and shoot everyone with an Uzi. I had a man in my neighborhood when I was in my late 30s. He was the deacon at the local Baptist church. He was the nicest guy in the world. Everybody called him grandpa, and he had a four-year girl buried in his basement. He was leading the charge of the expedition looking for her body. So I didn't mean to get so grotesque. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm trying to explain that low anger uh, is not someone who doesn't want to be angry. It's somebody who tends to be very patient or very optimistic or very fearful. So very fearful just means they just walk around in the world with a very heightened awareness of errors and mistakes. So everything they do is like dismantling a bomb. They're very mm -hmm. concise. They're very careful. They're very consistent. They're very analytical, things like that. Um, the patient people, they just have a big invisible cricket constantly on their shoulder whispering in their ear. Are you sure you want to say that? Are you sure you want to go there? Are you sure you want to do that? That kind of a thing. And so they question everything in an effort to be safe. And so those are the submissives. And then the optimists. They just jump off the cliff and build their wings while they're falling. <laughs> I call them cats. No matter how you throw them out the window, they tend to land on their feet. And so these people, when those emotions are inconsistent, anger becomes inconsistent. Every single one of those people I just mentioned are conflict avoiders. So anger plays a pretty important role in our ability to face conflict and navigate it properly. Yes, it does. If you have enough anger, you will deal with what needs to be dealt with. If you don't, you will avoid it until you can't. That doesn't mean you're not good at it. It means you just avoided it until you couldn't avoid it anymore. But what happens as default setting is now it's worse than it was. That, that's just how that translates. You can still be good at negotiating that conflict when it happens, but now you're negotiating a lot more than you would have had to negotiate if you did this earlier. This is why in the workplace, hiring managers that are passive keep the wrong people for a long time. So if you look at the statistics, companies lose money not by hiring the wrong people, but by keeping the wrong people. So they hold on to something for fear of upsetting the apple cart for fear of looking like a bad person, for fear of being misunderstood. Like there's these different things that are playing out. People that are uh, pay setter types, which is a combination of anger and patience, which is rare. Um, they're 1% of the population. That's the dog you're not sure you can pet. You can't read them at all. So you don't know if they're going to hire you or fire you. You don't know if they're going to tell you a joke or kick you in the neck. You don't know what they're going to do. So we can't read them. So we avoid them. And when you try to get touchy-feely with them, it's like hugging a cactus. It just, they don't do people. They only do things. So what happens to people? They become a thing so they can do them. Some people turn people into things so it's easier to deal with them. That's why we say they use people as tools. Does that mean they hate people? No. Has nothing to do with that. It just means it's easier to swing a hammer than it is to knit a sweater. And because their brain's wired for swinging hammers, then they're just like, oh, just get Bob. He'll lift it. And then when Bob's done lifting it, you don't say thank you. You don't say, wow, how was your week? And you're like, thanks, Bob. See you later. Why? Got it done. That was the goal. Reach the goal. What's next?
That's how super dominant people are. That's how dominant people with optimism are. Visionaries tend to be that way. They tend to be better in the instant and terrible in the constant. So what that means is they're great at a sprint, but they're poor at a marathon. They're great starters. They're poor finishers. So these are people that start a company, and then once the company is up and running, they're bored. So they sell it. Or they start recreating the company over and over and over again by going off on fruitless tangents in order to do more and more startups within the startup. Because they're starters, they're not finishers. So what they need to learn is start it and then get out of the way. Get the plane in the air and let somebody take over the driving. Those are the wings. Like some people are wings, some people are engines. So people, some people are like rockets. Okay, it just goes and goes and goes and goes until it's like in outer space. Now it's going 17,000 miles an hour. Like those people that are in companies, you know, now you're talking about, you know, Steve Jobs, right? His kids hated him. No one would get in an elevator with him. Why? He'll fire me by the fourth floor. I ain't getting in there. He was a sociopath. I shared the stage with the chief evangelist for Apple. And he was talking about the way he was and this and that and how he's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, it's amazing if you can take it. If not, he's your worst nightmare. Hmm. Basically, he said, this is what I want. Build it or go home. That's how he ran his business. Well, okay. Well, we got the iPhone out of it. Wow. Changed the world. Right? Well, then we had to clean up the bodies. Good or bad. I mean, it's so it's so fascinating to see how you know, just the, the web of what you're describing, uh, how these, how these different traits can really impact us. And I feel like we could go on, you know, indefinitely, like I would, I would love to have just a, like a two and a half hour Joe Rogan style full length convo with you. Um, cause this is incredibly fascinating. We do have to wrap up though, because I want to be respectful of your time. And, uh, you know, I think if you were to give people something actionable to do with some of this information or something that they can do to learn more uh, about about what to do with this information, um, what would you leave them with? Well, you know, uh, the best gift you can give yourself is to know yourself, in my opinion, because then you can center in on knowing other people. And in the process of doing that, you can negotiate the relationships well, and that creates synergy. I mean, we obviously offer the profiles in our, uh, in, in our behavioral resource group. And if I can't debrief it, I have analysts that can. And we rarely ever offer an analysis without a debriefing. So people go through the analysis and then they talk to me for an hour or 90 minutes. <laughs> and they're either laughing or crying. Maybe, maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, but it's very powerful. Um, uh, but people that want to figure out, okay, what's going on? Why am I here? What should I do? We can get as close as possible to answering those questions because now we know what we're dealing with. I want to be in the Daytona 500. Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you know you are a Toyota Yaris, right? Uh, so you got a Yaris who wants to be in the Daytona 500 and they keep getting fired. And they don't know why. What I need to do is say, what's wrong with a Yaris? Why don't you see that as an asset? People fail because they don't see their strength as strength. That's why people fail. Every human being has the potential to win. But only in the game they're made to play in. If you're a golf ball, you don't work out well on a basketball court. Mm. And it's not a bad ball. It's the wrong game. So I just tell them which ball they are. And make, help them make sure they're in the right game. And then life is good. I love it. I love it. Such a, such a great description. I love the analogies and the metaphors. I think it makes it, um, you know, almost edible for people to understand and sort of take in. So listen, Stephen, this was in, just really incredible. I, I really enjoyed this very uh, few times where, I, where I'm interviewing someone on my podcast and I'm sitting here just listening from a space of trying to absorb and take in everything that they're saying in a, in a way of uh, wonder and awe and fascination. And so I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And yeah, and um, I'd love to Thank have you, you so back much. on the show at some point to talk about listening, because I know that's a big part of what the work that you do and, sure. uh, and, uh, and maybe talk about, you know, some of the projects that you have up and coming in the future. So thanks so much for joining me again today. 
for everyone that's out there uh, listening, definitely uh, head on over and check out some of Stephen's work. We'll have all the links uh, to his work in the show note and the and the the book, The Younger Brain, that we were talking about on the show. Uh, don't forget to head on over and uh, leave us a rating and review, whatever platform you're listening on, whether that's iTunes or Google Play or Spotify. We are on all the major platforms now. Uh, and don't forget to share this episode with just one person. It goes a long way to uh, getting it into the ears and the phones of people that could really uh, use and grow from this information so until next week this is connor beaton signing off join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual 